Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Marguerite Young's Inviting the Muses. Our next review in the book is To Be or Not, and it's by Jean-Paul Sartre, The Age of Reason. Yes, I looked up how to pronounce it, because <laughs> I had a feeling his name was going to be in here a lot. Now, I'm not doing like the French Sartre, Sartre, I don't know, I can't speak French, so I don't know. Time, space, motion, all are riddled with self-contradictions, with paradoxes, which, were they resolved, might do away with reality. All three have to be conceived as both finite and infinite, for example. Space, we are told by the philosophers, may be objective, may be subjective, and which is which. Space cannot be identified with what it contains, and yet exists as nothing apart from its content. Logic, physics, ma physics mathematics, none can give us an absolute truth. The same with ethics, with the realm of human conduct. There being opposed views of good, one man's meat may be another man's poison. Meat is never poison. Sorry, I'm, I'm objecting to that. Yet the pretense of human intellect is to discover meanings more than are given in nature, even when these meanings contradict each other, even when opposing symbols meet in a confluence of ultimately undefinable symbolism, such as we invariably find in great speculative literature. Unfortunately, for the ex existentialist movement, now being so widely discussed, often by the uninitiate, uninitiate who have discovered for the first time a formal theory of reality, Jean-Paul Sartre, the age of reason, erects no such world of symbolism as would be necessary to prove his thesis that life is meaningless. The thesis that life is meaningless is in itself quite meaningless, requiring, for its rich exposition, many meanings as to paradox, as to self-contradiction, as to time, space, motion, suprasensible realities, the human mind, the dream. If there is supposed to be a philosophic motivation behind this novel, it is curiously unevident. Is betrayed only by now and then on its blank, empty, unvisionary pages the guilty thumbprints of Jean Paul Sartre. Thumbprints, I say, for there is no background of informative philosophy as to life's meaninglessness, which must be in itself a flood of many polar meanings, whether seen at a moment or under the aspect of eternity, real or fictitious. Mr. Sartre's thumbprints, little slogans, little catchphrases, show his determination to be philosophical as to the irrational, the unintelligible world of worlds, in which his static characters find themselves abjectly adrift. But there the matter both begins and ends, for no more complicated reason it may be than the author is not, in any high, serious sense, a creative artist in this field. If, by profession, he is or has been a professor of philosophy, he certainly abandoned speculation when he began to write this curiously tiresome book, Realism at a Low Level, of which all the pages yield not so rich a harvest as a single page in the works of less heralded, less publicized novelists, to say nothing of the great figures of the past, such as the luminous brooding Proust, Joyce, Henry James, Gogol. Indeed, even if we accept as tenable Mr. Sartre's slogan, Philosophy of Existentialism, a nice little dish cooked up to be philosophy for an unphilosophic public, we find that, according to his own haphazard terms, he is far less the ex existentialist than such an apparently naturalistic writer as Theodore Dreiser, who knew, in an American tragedy, the financier, the titan, more of life's phantasmagoric base than Mr. Sartre will ever know, to judge by his present limitations of temperament and vision. The brute fact is that Mr. Sartre has done his job too well, 
He has written a novel as meaningless as any novel of similar pretensions could be, filled with gaping pages in which small mechanical people, often not characterized, live as paper dolls, discuss flatly and for many pages an art exhibit, pink ice cream, and abortionist. The writing moves stiffly at a low level of perception, with authority taking the place of wild metaphysics, with no buzz, no boom of reality, with never the irresistible impressions, with little or no subjective content to show the perils of belief. The author is the moderate, sensible, middle-of-the-path man, it would seem, by nature no artist, tackling problems which, even as he proposes them, cannot be treated any more moderately than we find them in the book of Job, another attack on telelogies. And the age of reason proves, if nothing else, that there is no philosophic formula to take the place of that native genius, which permits in a work of art an organic, sensible growth of image and idea, taking the writer sometimes far away from what he had intended. Mr. Sartre has been all too sure of his conscious processes, their rightness, writing with such vain superficiality as to shut out the true dreams, delirium's madness, delusional systems which he should have let in, allowing no two parallel lines ever to converge, nothing which is ever, nothing which is true ever to be false, none of those misrepresentations of objects which we do every day meet with, whether we are philosophers or not. There is evidently not a grain of the irrational in the author's character. For him, things proceed slowly. His mind reverts to the conventional, the stereotypes, the customary. Indeed, pages and pages of this writing could have been published with little change in one of the slick magazines which, while wishing to appear to print good fiction, does actually print the almost good. The age of reason is all too near the slick and near in technique a bad motion picture of French life, manufactured not in France, but in Hollywood. For though Mr. Sartre is French, he is streamlined. Every face is a mortician's mask without identity. That which is intended to be shocking leaves the reader unshocked. Scenes are cut out of cardboard stage with cardboard principles. The interesting backdrop being a lady's pink boudoir at a sidewalk cafe. Rather, several such. Mr. Sartre, without luminosity, without music, has never brooded, never speculated over his characters, what they think, what they feel, they, why they behave as they do. He tells us they are nauseated, degenerated, degenerated, tired. They are thus hardly worth reading about. They are so uncomplex. The author's feeling for human motivations, as Shakespeare would say, is shallow. His pessimism is only the reverse of greeting card optimism, and both are automatic. If Mr. Sartre had decided to be an optimist, he could have been one with equal happiness. Whatever side of reality he takes, it will always include the other, assuming that reality has two sides. For Mr. Sartre, in some kind of curious modern fundamentalist, reducing everything to a few often repeated slogans, tiresome, very tiresome. This was published in Tiger's Eye, 1947. So, <laughs> okay, so this this is really, really, really interesting when you read Miss Macintosh, My Darling, because that Miss Macintosh, My Darling, is based on philosophy, is full of philosophy, and Sartre is in there, as is Camus with absurdism. Um, and Eastman, and I don't remember the exact quote, um, says, Young differs from Camus as far as absurdism, because she has, um, I'm gonna. Uh, I don't. I don't know exa the exact quote, but it's more. It's been something. It's something like, which I'll have to find. I have it somewhere, but I'll have to find it. Uh, it's something like compassion, uh, humility. Like there's some kind of human uh, feeling in there 
as opposed to Camus. So she acknowledges the, the absurdism in both. Um, and I think Young was writing before Camus, but I'm not sure. Um, but, um, of course, she wasn't published until 65. Miss McIntosh, my darling, wasn't. So there's that connection, but that, but Nin stresses that Young has a, there's a different, there's a slight bend. And then it's going to be very interesting once the new edition of Miss McIntosh, my darling, comes out because what I saw as her just, I saw her, I saw the book as having a commentary on philosophy and the different philosophies and working them in there. I think there's already a strong argument, and I think there's also a strong argument for creativity um, because of uh, because she was a teacher. So, I, And that's kind of the focus that I'm looking at, uh, that I want to look at the book at next time I read it. But I think it's very interesting, Sartre, that she really does not like Sartre. And that um, uh, that what I was, uh, what am I trying to say? That it's a critique of that existentialism that I did not realize was there. Like, I wouldn't have realized that she was, it's, I, w- I did not realize when I was reading it that this was a critique on philosophy and that the meaninglessness and the stuff that's going on in the novel several times I could see it I thought she was just alluding to existentialism whereas she maybe have may have been critiquing it which was going to be very interesting to go back and see if I find if I can pick that out and find that instance those instances in the book very interesting I did not expect uh, which whoever, you know, very sm- um, uh, smarter people than me uh, obviously did, who put together Inviting the Muses, and I did not expect them to um, to know that they should have collected and published these essays because it would it would give a good backdrop to what she was thinking um, what she was reading, what and uh, what she was reading, and what she was thinking about um, at the time that she was writing the novel. So much smarter people than me. Uh, uh, Dalkey, let's see, Dalkey Archive. Yeah, they're the ones who published it. Um, uh, published inviting the muses that and her poetry, which really give. But this inviting the muses is really giving a good insight into what she was thinking at the time that she was actually writing that epic novel, which is really interesting. Okay, that's it. The rest of them, let's see, we're going to finish up here, I think in a week or two. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, we're going to finish up next week. Seven. I think we're going to finish up next week um, sometime. And then uh, I think I'm just going to move right on into Angels in the Forest. Um, Because I do want to get some reading into Eugene Debs before I join the reading group in November. And, oh, that'll be so cool, though, because if, uh, especially if the finish up, and especially if the new edition comes out, um, because after I finish Debs, I plan on rereading Miss McIntosh, My Darling. So, and in more of an informal, like not reading... The, the first 82 seasons of the, of the podcast that was reading it, I don't know if I guess, but the serious, serious intention of making like an audiobook of it, 
a really crappy one and a really unedited one, I understand, but trying to make one nonetheless so that um, this next reading would be uh, very much an informal reading using the information, you know, everything that I've read, all of the works that I've read of, by her, all of the research I've done, put in for four years on the book, and also uh, going back to Stephen Shaviro's uh, uh, notes on the book, and then and just kind of like pulling all of that together to read through the book at least one more time as a podcast um, uh, to ruminate on it. I think it'll, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually really excited. I wasn't sure if I would be up to reading it again. <laughs> I could have read it three or four times now. I wasn't sure if I'd be up to reading it again, but now with everything and then with as much, um, uh, stuff that I'm getting out of, you know, like inviting the muses, um, it'll be interesting to see what's in Deb's. Uh, no, I'm looking forward to it. Now I think it's, it's going to be worthwhile and something that, uh, something that I'll, I'll even glean some more insights out of. All right. Sorry. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.